This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by Mo Stewart. Mo, how's things, mate? I'm good. I'm in better health and so are Liverpool, so everything's looking rosy <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah, so are Liverpool, definitely, mate. Yeah, it's, it's nice to record, you've been saying to you then, haven't I? It's nice to record after two wins. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we've got, a, I suppose, a positive podcast on our hands, plenty to deconstruct, uh, two interesting games, two different games as well. Mm. Um. But I'm not really sure where to start. There's a number of ways we can go here, but I suppose we, considering the size of the game, we we can go back to Manchester City. I think. Um, obviously we both predicted losses, <laughs> uh, and I think rightly so. I mean, you know, you gotta get you gotta give City credit what they're doing lately. Our incredible team and things like that. Liverpool win in the best form. Looked leaky on the defensive side of the game, especially, which is why obviously we keep a clean sheet. Um. I thought it was very much a throwback Klopp performance. To be honest, mate, I thought it was. Mm-hmm. It was. I mean, I I did kind of say that. I think it, I thought Liverpool could roll back the years and be a bit more chaotic. It wasn't necessarily chaotic, but it was very counter attack, wasn't it? It was. I think the intensity was back. That was the really thing that you noticed. Like Liverpool weren't giving City an inch. Even you can look at the stats and say City had loads of possession. They made loads of passes, but every one of those passes was under pressure. They didn't have it easy. And I think that was kind of what helped Liverpool in the early stages, helped get the crowd on side. Because, yeah, I imagine most people in Anfield were as fearful as we were going into the game based on what we saw from the team, particularly the fears around Milner playing at right back. But they started well and built into the game. And, yeah, it was just a really positive performance from everybody, really. And I think there were some things tactically that they did that helped us. Uh, but I also think it was a very good performance from a lot of people who had question marks around them, let's say. Yeah, well, we can speak about Guardiola, I think, first. His, his, his tactical approach was very, very interesting. It was typical Guardiola in many ways. You know, I think he is inclined in these big games to overthink it, maybe. Uh, I don't know if he overthought this one. I thought there was some sense attached to what he did, but... Specifically defensively, I don't think it helped Manchester City. And I think there is definite argument there to suggest that if he'd have just kept everything the same and just City against Liverpool, I think he probably would have done a lot better, to be honest. Um, but what he did anyway was when City had the ball, um, City formed a back three of Nathan Aki, Ruben Diaz and Manu Akanji as well. And then ahead of those was a midfield two. Then ahead of those was a kind of offensive midfield two. Then you had a very wide, almost wing-back pair, but they weren't really wing-backs. They were like two wingers in Cancelo and Foden. And then Haaland up front. So it was very... It was, I suppose you could say it was a bit galaxy brain. Um and it, it did work in moments. Like, there was a specific moment. If you think of City's best chance, hmm. most people would, would say the the Haaland header where the Bruyne crosses the two. And I thought that was a perfect example of, this, of the system working exactly how Guardiola wanted. Because the Bruyne gets the ball in space in the typical De Bruyne area. And Robertson can't close him down because 
he's occupied by Cancelo. Haaland drifts towards the back stick, and De Bruyne puts in a signature De Bruyne cross again to a, a six foot three, six foot four monster finisher. And it, it would have worked perfectly well, I thought, if, if that had gone in, but it didn't. And other than that, Liverpool kept them pretty quiet. But what did you think of, uh, of Guardiola's tactics? I mean, to a certain extent, I have some sympathy, well, more sympathy with him for changing things than normal, simply because Liverpool were doing different things kind of fundamentally, as we've discussed this season, compared to previously. So it's almost like because we're giving him something new to think about, it gives him an excuse to try and think about something else and try and find ways to counteract it. So from that perspective, I understand it. I also think that he predicted Milner would play, which is why he wanted to get Foden as wide as possible to deal with him. The interesting thing about that, though, is that, like you say, there was the two city midfielders, so to speak, and then the two more advanced ones. Uh, Bernardo Silva was initially one of the more... uh, uh, reduced midfielders uh, and then you had Gundogan ahead which I would have assumed it would have been the other way around with Bernardo Silva looking to maybe occupy Elliot, maybe cause an overload and leave Foden one-on-one with Milner. There wasn't very many opportunities, particularly in the first half, where it was just Foden one-on-one with Milner. Now part of that was Liverpool doing a good job of covering over and blocking the ball out but I think City could have moved the ball a bit quicker and maybe really tested that. But there's a lot of cat and mouse going on at this stage of the game. So, yes, I understand why Guardiola made his changes, but that moment you mentioned where De Bruyne got free, I think the other reason why that didn't happen very often is because of the way Liverpool was set up. I mean, I think Diego Jota, uh, I don't have the numbers to hand for his uh, amount of tackles, interceptions, blocks and pressures, but defensively, I thought he was fantastic. And I think he really made a difference in terms of De Bruyne being able to influence the game in the positions he wanted to. Yeah, uh, Jota top for the match for tackles and interceptions on eight, um, which is quite unusual for a forward. Um, mm-hmm. Just behind him is Thiago on seven. Um, but yeah, I thought... I mean, we we, have, we obviously have to touch on James Milner. <laughs> I mean, we, we we have mentioned earlier in the season that he is not supposed to be playing in games like this. And uh, he's supposed to come on for the last 20 minutes in certain games and see a match out through his leadership, communication, experience, all that intangible stuff that doesn't really exist, but it does. Um, but in this game... He just didn't put a foot wrong, did he? And yeah. I think he, I, I, but I do think he massively benefited from the recent change to four four two because we we did mention a while back when Klopp moved towards four four two that this change was for Trent, and the big change in particular was when it comes to a high press, it now involves basically the front four and the midfield two, and the back four remain as a back four. So I thought throughout the game. Milner was free to just act as a traditional, limited, basic fullback, and it, it benefited him. I know he got forward once or twice, but for the most part, he really did just do the basics, and it allowed him to to just play within his means almost. And whereas sometimes when he's in midfield, specifically this season, he's just he's just expected to do everything, cover loads of ground, contribute in attack, cover defensively, and it's just a bit too much for him sometimes. 
I think you're right. And Klopp has sometimes been a little bit too slow, I think, to recognise the, uh, the the fallibilities of the players within the system, as in the system is always the system. And if you've got someone in there replacing someone who's maybe not quite as good at certain bits, he doesn't tweak it. It's just that, that those, those bits get exposed. But I think you're right. This time, it was a little bit more of... Uh, something that's going to be more comfortable for Milner from the perspective of conserving energy, if nothing else. But also, when he did get forward, it was more beneficial because by that point, City weren't expecting him to get forward as much as they were. And still, as I mentioned last week, Harvey Elliott's defensive instincts are growing with every week. So there was more opportunities that whenever Milner did go, Elliot was always ready to cover over. He was always ready looking at that space in behind him. So there was never a moment where uh, we lost the ball and Milner was high at the pitch and there was no one to cover. Yeah. Um, I think specifically as well, I'm just double-checking now. So, yeah, so when Milner last played against Foden, it was around field before I got nightmares about it. It wasn't a great day. But Milner's inside centre-back on that day was Matup. And Matip has loads of perks. I am a huge fan of Matip. But when it comes to getting drifted, get, getting dragged over towards the wide areas and covering against a player like Foden, I think Gomez suited that role more than Matip. So in terms of helping Milner out, essentially, with Foden, mm-hmm. drifting over to the flanks and up, operating as a, a backup fullback, fullback at times almost... I thought Gomez really helped, and uh, throughout the game, Gomez and, and Van Dijk in particular were just brilliant. I thought it was really nice to see a proper centre back display from both both of Liverpool's centre halves for the first time in a while. It feels, and uh, yeah, specifically Van Dijk was. It's great to see him like that when he, when he's like that. Macy is honestly genuinely unplayable. To be honest, he's he's absolutely ridiculous when he's like that, and it does feel. That we haven't really seen that this season. And it took a game where he's getting doubters, he's up against a striker who's absolutely firing. He's presented with a real challenge. And on the back of that, he steps up and shows how good he is, reminds everyone. Yeah, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? It's like the, these kind of big games and big challenges. For some of those players, it's probably easier to get up for those than it is your kind of your West Ham's and your Newcastle's at home in midweek. So yeah, he was primed, he was ready. And the thing I think was interesting was the way it was very much billed as the battle of Van Dyke versus Haaland before the game and all of the talk that he was, all the questions he was asked about him. But the reality of most games is, is that Haaland's a clever enough striker to know that in theory, he's going to get more change out of Joe Gomez than out of Virgil Van Dyke. Particularly if this is a Joe Gomez, as we just said, who's obviously having to think about covering over for Milner against Foden. So, as the game progressed, you saw Haaland pulling more and more onto Gomez and less and less onto Van Dijk. But Gomez was up to the challenge as well, and I loved that. He was physical when he needed to be. And in terms of covering over for Milner, the reason why I think he does it better than Matip, again, it's that speed. That speed allows him to be decisive. Because you've obviously got to be aware of the space you're leaving when you go over to cover. But because he does it so quickly and so decisively, the rest of the team are more aware and they shift over. Where sometimes Matip kind of dangles half and half so the other players don't know whether to shift over or not. And it just kind of spreads indecision. Yeah, it just it just goes to show when it comes to Haaland that when, when he's up against 
central defenders who who physically, in Van Dijk's case, can match him, and in Gomez's case, certainly isn't far off that as well. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a lot more of a trickier game for him, and I thought Van Dijk in particular was um, uncharacteristically leaving something on. Haaland more often than he usually would. I've always felt Van Dijk's a bit too nice, to be honest. Yeah. I like the thought of a centre-half who's just basically horrible. And I think Van Dijk's got enough physicality about him to just basically be that guy, be like another, um, almost like a centre-half version of Roy Keane or, I don't know, well, Yapstam. Yapstam, yeah, yeah. I was literally just going to say Yapstam. That's, he's, he's, in my mind, when I think of that kind of dominant defender with just an absolute stone face, that's yeah. the kind of because you don't necessarily have to be like antagonistical or like you get into battles and stuff, but just leave everyone in no doubt that you aren't to be messed with. I yeah, that's yeah, better, yeah. That better than everyone. Yeah, well, it felt like he, he he kind of assumed that mold more than usual against Thailand, uh, and it was nice to see. Obviously, Thailand didn't get on the score sheet, and we are touching on how Liverpool's defensive game was was superb. And it's it's kind of captured what well, it is captured in the numbers as well. Um, even though City took sixteen shots to Liverpool's thirteen, Liverpool kept City's quality really down, and that has not been the case this season in any game really. Um, City accumulated an expected goals of just one, um, bang on one that is, um, and Liverpool's expected goals was was bang on two. Um, so it's as much of a justified 2-1 win as you can ever see, really. But Liverpool ended up winning at 1-0. Um, for a bit of perspective, throughout the whole of last season, City posted below 1xG on just four occasions against Stephen Gerrard's Aston Villa, uh, Brentford, Atletico Madrid in the Champions League knockouts, and Chelsea. So to keep City down to that level in terms of their attack, just kind of epitomises how how Liverpool kind of assume the mould of of what we know from previous years, where they're just very difficult to play through, very difficult to, to generate opportunities against. And um, it's about time we got back to that, really, and hopefully it's going to be the case moving forward. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, hopefully it is. And it's interesting as well because... When people were talking about Liverpool moving to this kind of four four two, if you want to call it that or whatever, a lot of people were saying the reason that people went away from it was because of the potential to leave the space between the lines. And with a team like City with so many intelligent, creative midfielders in and around the box, you would expect them to be able to exploit that better than anyone. So for Liverpool's for this defensive um new structure to stand up against that test above all others it's surely got to give them confidence for the rest of the season going forward yeah the only issue is we aren't going to face a team and a match scenario like that very often where Klopp can almost focus on counter-attacking as the as the primary means of posing a threat and Liverpool can remain that compact um because we, we usually Almost expected to, as a means of opening up the the opposing defence, um, and in addition to that, I tweeted during the first half that I thought City's way of attacking was was surprising, considering specifically how how Arteta attacked us a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. because it was very. I actually said after the game, vertical attacks 
vertical attacks as a, a thing against Liverpool, and Liverpool have suffered from that all season. And then we come up against City, and I thought they had a few opportunities to basically cut right through us. But because it's Guardiola, they, they, they almost opted for control over over mm. Nelson and just and almost allowed Liverpool to get bodies behind the ball. So, although it was probably Liverpool's best defensive performance of the season, it was arguably the kind of opponent that will allow Liverpool to look good defensively, as as good as they are. It let Liverpool, it you know, there was not much of a demand on recovery pace and like that. It was just Liverpool were able to behave as a block. No, I get that. And it's weird because <laughs> I think in some ways Guardiola's uh, experience of bit Anfield has kind of worked against him in some ways there because it's almost like he was very much he was very much confused in the messages that he was giving out because I noticed it as well that there was plenty of times, first half in particular, where City could have gone for the jugular and didn't. Yeah. And there were times, it almost appeared like they were waiting for certain periods in the game. Like the last 10 minutes of the first half, they did put the pressure on. And it was almost like that was part of their game plan. They were waiting for us to tire and then they were going to try and put the pressure on. But by the same token, there was one moment right towards the end of the half where, again, Foden, they'd worked the ball, so Foden was in space and Milner was the only man anywhere near him and he wasn't even that close. So a quick switch would have left Liverpool in trouble, but instead they pass it through the midfield and by the time it gets to Foden, we've all shuffled across and Guardiola's furious. So obviously he has told them that, like you said, those vertical attacks are important at certain times, but I also think he kind of muddied the waters by saying maybe wait to certain points to, to try and attack them rather than going gung-ho. So it's very easy to look at a game plan with Guardiola and think, like you said, he overthinks everything to within an inch of his life. But maybe in this case, he actually did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, right? But what are your thoughts on Guardiola makes that of interest? Because um, I think generally I, I see a lot of Liverpool supporters who almost seem to have a degree of hate towards him in, in, a, in many ways. Um, I suppose it's because he's the main rival. He benefits mm. from excessive support in terms of investments over the years and things like that. But um, he's called weird at times and stuff. But yeah. if I'm totally honest, mate, I think he's great. I really, I think he's brilliant. And I, and I, I like that when he comes to Anfield. <laughs> You can tell he's just a bit mad. You can tell he's absolutely obsessed, mate, at Wood Football. And he knows that across his career, that that game at Anfield is his biggest test as a coach, I think. To, yep. con- to control that environment is is hard, mate. And I think <laughs> I think he just um, he's just losing the plot sometimes when it comes to his efforts to do that. But uh, that's... No, I'm like you. I think it's brilliant. And I think it shows... Both in the reasons why he's so good in that obsession, but also it's in his fallibility because he takes that too far. He clearly takes it too far. Like I was wondering when it happened, how much of an effect that win that um, Man City had at Anfield during lockdown was going to have. Because us as fans, we're all like, oh, well, it doesn't matter because the crowd weren't there, blah, blah, blah. But as players, you're thinking, well, no. It's the same 11 guys on this side and the same 11 guys on that side, and we beat them. We won there. So you'd think that they'd be able to take something from it. 
But to look at not only their performances, but Guardiola's in particular since then, you'd have to say no, because he's obsessed with the crowd. And I love it because there's a kind of a reverence within that obsession, a kind of an admission of the times when Liverpool can transcend above the normal team and become something bigger than just 11 players on the field. Yeah, But it gets in his head so much that he ends up doing silly things. Like, like when he was G'ing up the main stand, like, I mean, that was hilarious. <laughs> it was fantastic. But at the same time, it was absolutely the worst thing he could have done for his team in that moment because he needed Anfield calmer, not more frantic. And yeah, at, at that, if you think of the time that happens, that was kind of in the preamble to lead up to what became the winning goal. So we've seen it before with Arteta when he's come and he's tried to get involved with the crowd and it's not worked for him. Someone has as experienced and as detail-oriented as Pep Guardiola to continually make those kind of emotional mistakes because he just can't help it because Anfield is in his head so much. I love it. I really do. The, the thing is, though, as well, like, you, you can label them as mistakes, obviously, but I, I would also, I just like it. I don't know, there's something about it. Like, even, even when Salah goes through and Cancelo makes that, dramatic mistake and Pep falls to his knees Yeah, and a few years back I think there was a good game and I feel it might have been 2-2 or, or whatever and, and Guardiola does that that really extravagant handshake with Klopp at the end of the game where he's just like fully in the moment and stuff he's just um, and his, his tendency to come up with crazy tactical plans to get, to get the better of Liverpool while Klopp just usually sticks with 4-3-3 and goes with it Um. I just think he's he's, he's a, a really great opponent to have, and I think he's a, part of the reason he's still going in England after so many years, as well as obviously getting handsomely paid. I think it's to do with he does have a real challenge when it comes to, to Liverpool. and um, Although he's probably the main reason why Liverpool haven't really dominated English football for the past few years, and he will be... A sad elements of him leaving. It's also a case of when he does leave, Liverpool should be more likely to win more trophies. But yeah, it's just a bit of a weird side note on that because I, I do I do love it when when we face a Guardiola team and when he comes to Anfield, it's just it's just different to whenever. I mean, I suppose it's up there with Ferguson really in many ways when it comes to how Ferguson used to view Anfield in comparison to yeah. other grounds. I think so. And I mean, all all of the big managers, if you listen to them talk about it, particularly once they're out of the firing line, they'll admit it a little bit regularly. But yeah, they've all recognised that that it's bigger than just the team when it comes to Anfield. And I find it funny how they all differently um, react to it. Like, probably the most successful of the, all the opponent managers, Ancelotti, is probably the calm. Well, he's definitely the calmest. And yeah. he's, 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 he doesn't necessarily dismiss it as a thing but he just deals with it in his own way and whether or not that kind of transmits to his team or not but I've always noticed that's that thing about Carlo Ancelotti he's always been able to be like okay this is just a thing and we have to deal with it like everything else but other to other managers they try to kind of like solve the mystery of Anfield and end up tying himself in knots yeah I mean I've just touched on there on, on the moment where Salah goes through Obviously, the man to register the assist is Alison Becker. Uh, it's his fourth scoring contribution, I think, in the Premier League. Three assists and one goal, 
which is quite, quite incredible. Uh, I think he's behind only Paul Robinson now in Premier League history for returns as a goalkeeper, uh, which, to be honest, Mo, I, I didn't recall Paul Robinson to be one of those, to be honest. I don't know if, if you do. No, but again, maybe that's more to he's do got with... six, apparently. I think that's more to do with the kind of, like, late... I don't know, without seeing those assists, yeah. I'd imagine it was a long goal kick that someone headed in. Like, yeah. Or a, a free kick from, the, like, the the, um, the his own half that he's played in over the top. Someone's lived it. Yeah, maybe he scored a... Yeah, those kind of things at play, and you've got chaos. The thing about Allison's ones is that all of them are exactly the same because they're all to Salah. And they're all about not only the accuracy, but the quick thinking. Because if you think about Mo Salah, how often in a game is he going to get space? Very, 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 very seldom does he get space. The only times he gets space is when the other team are attacking, particularly towards the end of a game when they're getting desperate. And that's when Allison's looking for it. And I remember uh, in 2018-19, there was a game away at Burnley and we were 2-1 up late in the game and Burnley were putting the pressure on and Allison makes a fantastic save and everyone's kind of obsessing about the save but before you've had a chance to realise it he's already thrown the ball out to Shakiri, who sends the ball on to Sturridge and it's a goal and rather than Liverpool just being content with holding off and holding on to that 2-1 win his quick thinking his anticipation and his accuracy allows us to get that extra goal and I mean, he's a fantastic goalkeeper. I'm sure we're going to talk about the penalty save in the next game. But when you can do that as well, it just, it just, it just opens up so many more avenues. Yeah, it sums them up. I think uh, I've, I've seen a replay of the goal a few times. And as as the ball is in the air, the, the Bruins cross, the Bruins free kick. Before it even gets gets like halfway to Allison, Salah already knows he's overhit it and Salah's already drifting towards Edison's goal, basically. Um, Alisson recognises it immediately and, as you say, assists him for the third time in the Premier League. Um, it's the most assists a goalkeeper's ever registered for the same player in Salah. And uh, obviously it led to the winning goal. Um, and as you say, in the same week, he goes and saves a penalty at the opposite end. Um against Jared Bowen and it just sums up like he's almost redefining what a goalkeeper can contribute there because he's you could argue he's directly responsible for Liverpool picking up two wins in a row by assisting the winning goal against City and saving a penalty against West Ham and he is this difference maker that Liverpool suggested he was a few years back when Liverpool played you know a world record face to secure the services some people were like how much can a goalkeeper contribute, considering you're paying sixty-five million or whatever it was for him? But he's just proved, hasn't he, over time that he's he's worth every penny. He is, and I think to me personally, he would have been worth it, even if he only gave defensive contributions. But the point is, in terms of the fee, is that he's worth whatever he's worth to the team bringing him in. And Klopp knew when you looked at the goalkeepers he had at that point and the way that we wanted to play football and the talents that we had in the team, he knew how much of a jump it would make to have someone who is not only able to do the shot-stopping goalie things, but also comfortable with his feet to be able to pass short and long and to be able to kind of 
bring teams onto us in terms of pressing and then hit them over the top or hit through them. And like you say, it gives you such an extra dimension in a way that you couldn't really quantify when he came in. You'd think, okay, it should be good, but not only does he have all of these elements to his game, he's reliable as well. Like, <laughs> probably injury is probably the most unreliable he's been for a goalkeeper in relative terms. But yeah, when he's on the pitch, he gives that calmness to everybody that he is in control. Like very, very, very rarely do we see him make more than one mistake in a game or a mistake in two consecutive games. Like he's not fallible. No one is not infallible. Sorry, no one is. But you never see him and think, oh, he's having a bad run. He might have a bad moment, but then it's gone. And yeah, I, I, I love him. Yeah, well, even against Manchester City, there was, there was a few moments where they had quite a few shots from outside the box. It feels, I think I might be wrong in saying that, but it feels like they did. And some of those, especially in high-profile games like that, it can be a little bit nervy, can't it, when you've got a simple save to make or you've just got to kind of retrieve it with your hands and it, sometimes it can bounce off you and things like that, little rebounds and stuff, and it can make everybody nervous. But there was just none of that. It was a very reliable safe performance, safe hands, as we say. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, sums them up, really. But one of the cameos later in that game, one of the more interesting cameos I've ever seen, I think, was uh, was Darwin Nunes, who came up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, it was definitely interesting, to say the least. But then, a couple of days later, he starts against West Ham. And it seems to be saying this each week now, which is a good thing. But if this was probably his best performance in a Liverpool mm-hmm. shirt, I would say. Um, I thought he was brilliant from the start. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. He was. And you're right, that's exactly what we want at this stage. Every week to look better. And every week for him to look a bit more comfortable. I say comfortable as a relative term because... Like, if ever a man has got a theme song, his is Wrecking Ball by Miley Cyrus. Because he, like, in that City game, he literally came in like a wrecking ball and they couldn't handle him. And But sometimes his kind of exuberance gets ahead of him. As we talk about decision-making a couple of times in that game, there was chances where he could have kind of played someone in and didn't. But I think all of those are things that will eventually start to get better. But in terms of what he does to the opposition you can already see that they are terrified of him. Both City and West Ham didn't know what to do when he was in and around them. And I think with the West Ham game, one of the reasons why I think he looked better is because we're getting more used to the balls that he likes. Like, I think if you look at the the assist for the goal, Simakas, he played, he didn't kind of go, once he was in space, he just played the ball in early. He didn't look to try and, come go down, run down the wing, occupy the right back a little bit, cut inside or anything like that. Got the ball out of his feet, got it in. And I noticed that he did that early on against Rangers as well. There was one header in particular that Nunes had where it was like a better ball could have given him an opportunity. This time it was a better ball and it gave him the goal. So I think that we're getting better at working out what he wants. He's also ridiculously quick. We forget this. He's the quickest player in the Premier League this season. They said it during the commentary. He's been clocked as the quickest player in the Premier League. Do you know what? I, th- I think I might be wrong in saying this, but I think that was the qu- quickest player ever in the Premier really? League. Really? I think so. 
I might be wrong in saying that, but um, I don't know how this stuff kind of works, to be honest. I'm not too clued up when it comes to physical stats, and generally they're a little bit weird. They're very private. They're not in the public domain. (laughs) Well, I mean... I, I, I would hate to go against the, 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 the boffins of science on this one, but the, 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 the thing about that is, is that it tells you what kind of a weapon that we have. And yes, the, the natural thing is to think, well, most teams aren't going to give him space to run in behind. You're not really going to get those opportunities. Most teams are going to come to Anfield and sit deep. And yet, he did. Like the ball that Thiago played over the top for him, the one where he hit it on the vault, that was exactly that she's to do it whether or not it's through counter-attacks so we have to be able to get better at utilizing that and i think we will again with time once he gets more used to him but he creates chaos wherever he goes he's a shot monster as in he just gobbles he's a he's a shot magnet should i say yeah and they will start to go in like the one that hit the post he did everything right he did absolutely everything right. And I don't even begrudge him the second one afterwards where he could have squared it to Firmino because it's like, damn it, I should have a goal here. I'm going to try again. But <laughs> I do think that, that it, there are so many echoes of other strikers you've seen where you can almost see them working it out game by game and then eventually it's just going to go bang. Yeah. I've just double-checked the um, the Nunes thing and it, it, it does seem to be a whole Premier League history stat. Um, apparently, the pre the play with the previous record was Kyle Walker, um, from twenty twenty. So, don't quote us on that, but it seems to be the case <laughs> at least. Um, and as you say, it's it's definitely a weapon that Liverpool can use. I felt during the game, we played a fair few balls in behind West Ham. Um, sometimes they were over the top, sometimes they were along the floor, but we seem to use his ability to latch on the end of those three balls quite a lot. And if you couple that in with the fact that I think Lucas Fabianski is about 48 and uh, <laughs> he's, he's not particularly inclined to, to leave his line. So you can use that space and behind the defence quite a lot. And I just say Simakas hitting those early crosses. I, th- I actually think Simakas is arguably better suited to Nunes than, than Robertson is in terms of crosses at least um, so far this season. Simicas is averaging six crosses on a pay and empty basis. Um, Robertson's about half that on about 3.4 pay and empty. Um, and the, they haven't played that much difference in terms of uh, minutes. For a bit of perspective, Trent is about 5.1 pay and empty. So Simicas is up on six. And as you say, Nunes is like six foot three, good in the air, uh, good anticipation and stuff. So, and, and obviously the goal stem from that. So I think that could be almost a bit of an unlikely partnership really moving forward. The only issue with that obviously is Andy Robertson's probably still a starter and rightly yeah. so really. I mean, it's something that he's going to have to get used to, I think, Robertson. But like you say, it's definitely a weapon that Simicast has in his arsenal now. It's interesting as well because if you think about Robertson, the way that we've normally played, he's normally got a Diaz or a Mane to kind of swap passes with and then overlap on the outside or maybe do a cutback or something. He's the one, like I said, who's looking to maybe get towards the byline more than the way Simicast would just try and get the early crossing. So maybe as he kind of gets more used to him, he'll be able to do that. Yeah, well, one thing I noticed about Nunes during the game, you mentioned there that he was a a chance magnet. Uh, I agree. And I think when it comes to his shots on the day, he posted six against West Ham, another six. Um 
which level level top for the game it was with Salah, who also posted six. But you've got to remember, Salah played about half an hour more than mm-hmm. Nunes, which kind of sums up his ability to just generate shots, getting in and around the dangerous areas and things like that. Um, but I think crucially, one thing I noticed was noticed this throughout the season is a he seems to be really capable on the volley. I don't know what it is, but whenever he's presented with volleys, mate, he seems to do a lot better than I expect him to do, certainly. And on top of that, out of his six shots, four of them were with his left foot. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that hit the post was a left-footed shot. And the one from that really weird angle going away from goal towards the corner flag was with his left foot. Now, when you think that that's his weaker foot and he's hitting the target to that extent from difficult angles and things, it, it is, I genuinely believe it's a matter of time before he scores four against someone or he he goes on a really hot run of form, like um, almost like Haaland is now, maybe not to that level because that's quite daft, but I do think he's he's going to explode at Liverpool. And I, after seeing the West Ham performance, especially, I am a lot less, not that I was concerned anyway, but I, I, I do think. Liverpool are justified in this move. Like just for a bit of perspective, now I've just got up the numbers. He hasn't played that much yet, but if you look at shots per ninety in the Premier League, fifth is Anthony on four per ninety. Fourth is Cristiano Ronaldo on four point two per ninety. Then you've got Rodrigo on four point two per ninety, and then in second you've got Haaland on four point seven per ninety. And then you've got a massive jump to Nunes on 7.4 per 90. So he, he's just, a, as you say, he's a chance magnet, Mason. He's, it's a matter of time, I think, before he explodes. No, I agree. I, I keep going back to thinking of him playing for Benfica in a settled side where he's more comfortable. And the array of finishes that he is able to put away, that's what I think of. When we get that guy in terms of he's that settled within himself and he's comfortable in our system, then that's when I think the goals are going to flow. And I was maybe a little critical of him, probably, uh, particularly against Arsenal. I felt like that was the game where, he, yes, he got the goal, but he wasn't maybe progressing in my mind to that person as quickly as I, I wanted him to. But maybe that's on me. Maybe that's on all of us. Like, I think the other thing we've got to address when we're looking at strikers, we've talked about... The, um, the inevitable comparisons with Haaland because of the way Liverpool City arrivals, because they came at the same time, etc., etc. But uh, the other thing we haven't acknowledged is that Nunes is kind of being compared to all of the other Liverpool strikers. And if you think of the way that Mane came in and Salah came in, and even going back to players like Fernando Torres, who, the big money guy who came in and hit the ground running. So we've seen that happen a lot. So... It's almost as if mentally, when we see someone who doesn't do that, we're kind of writing them off. But players have come good late. I think Suarez himself, I think Peter Crouch. Yeah. There's been times where it's taken some of the while to get going, but once they've got going, they've hit their stride and been flying. So maybe there's a mentally, subconsciously, a little bit of that going on with some of us. But yeah, I'm I'm still, I'm a lot more confident that he'll get there. Yeah, he's, he's like a weird blend, isn't he, of uh, of Suarez and, and Torres, really, in terms of his profile. He's not that different to being almost a hybrid between the pair of them. Um, but if you look at the downsides 
<laughs> the only negatives <laughs> that I want to touch on, not in terms of Nunes, but in terms of Liverpool, is obviously Klopp spoke since that Nunes had a, a very minor hamstring thing in a half time, so that's why he took him off early. After taking him off early, though, the substitutions that Klopp made, he brings on players and he's kind of forced into doing this at the minute, such as Harvey Elliott, Curtis Jones, Fabinho, Fabio Carvalho has been coming on lately. You keep Roberto Firmino on the pitch. One of the issues with those players is they're not particularly quick. They're all inclined to come to feet. And when that's the case, it's a lot easier then for the opposition to kind of creep up the pitch five or ten yards, start attacking a bit more because you've got less of a counter attacking threat going the opposite way. In the second half, I thought West Ham were quite unlucky not to level the score, and in the end, Liverpool got away with a 1-0 win. And a few weeks ago against Arsenal, Liverpool took off Salah, um, took off Jota, and eventually ended up with like uh, Henderson on the wing, Harvey Elliott on the wing, and Arteta did the same. He crept up the pitch, started dominating the game, started controlling Liverpool, and it's almost not Klopp's fault because Nunes, uh, because Diaz is injured, Joss is now injured. You need to give players rest, obviously. But the downside that I'm getting at is when Salah and Nunes are not on the pitch together, we're in a position now where Liverpool are a bit easy to to control, and you don't really have to think twice before committing bodies forward compared to when all of Liverpool's speedy attackers are on the pitch. So it's a bit of an issue. No, you're right. That is true. Um, One thing I noticed particularly against West Ham is that as the game wore on, Liverpool were, as you say, they weren't as able to keep the ball. West Ham grew into the game. They were able to get possession higher up the pitch. But Liverpool were still creating chances. Liverpool were still able to get out. Uh, I think Firmino in particular had three good chances in a short space of time. So it was working to an extent. But then the last 20 minutes, I believe that's when it really started to... West Ham really started to press home that advantage. And yeah, it's 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 pace going the other direction, which stretches the game. When the game is late, like I said before, in terms of when teams get desperate looking for a goal, there should be space going in behind. We saw it against City. That's literally where the the opportunity for Salah's goal came from. But as you say, without Salah, without um, Diaz or anyone else with that kind of outlet pace, it's going to be a problem. Interesting thing for me is, is this going to be a case where, particularly within the five subs, as in the fifth sub late in the game, do we have any of the younger or maybe youth players coming through who are quick? who you can maybe say, okay, just go on and be a problem in that scenario, rather than bringing on a Milner, who, as we said, has his benefits, particularly the, the last ditch saving tackle. But there was the moment earlier in the counter-attack where he knew that he couldn't run back, and so he had to make a foul, but he was so far behind that he couldn't even reach him with the foul. <laughs> like, like, I mean, it's all really good saying players have got to make tactical fouls. If they can't even reach the player to make it, it's a bit of a problem. So yeah. whether there's a scope to say, I don't know, I know that Kyle Gordon at the moment is injured, but maybe when he comes back, we might see him a little bit. I know it's obviously Bobby Clark was on the bench again. He's not lightning quick. Neither is Oxay Chamberlain anymore, unfortunately. I think this might be something else that we need to address through the transfer window. 
because one thing you can say about players is that you, they can get better tactically. They can better tactic technically. It's hard to say they're going to get any quicker. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the reasons Nunes was probably signed to be honest, because he had he's got that physical base that you just can't really improve. You can improve the other bits, but the physical elements, for the most part, at least, are pretty much there and there to stay really. Um, but he, even Andy Robertson has, has got a bit of pace about him. Yeah. But against Arsenal, Simicast played, and last night Simicast played, um, and it just feels like it might be something that we have to just kind of bear with until the World Cup, really, and until Liverpool get players back, because Klopp, Klopp can't just play Nunes and Salah every single minute, especially if they need rest or one, one of them's carrying the knock or whatever. So it's something that I just wanted to flag that Liverpool mm. might just have to suffer from um, in the next couple of weeks. One one way around it, uh, one way to mitigate it, is to be more than 1-0 up when you're going into the last 15 minutes. Like, when, they're, when they're on the pitch, put the ball in the back of the net loads of times. So then, at that point, it becomes a very different game. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not an expert here, but I reckon that might help. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good point. <laughs> I mean, on the day, Liverpool posted 1.9 XG against West Ham and scored one goal. So, you could argue we should have two there. But West Ham also posted 1.9 XG. Um, about 0.76 of that will have been the penalty. But a penalty is still a penalty in a way. So, again, looking at that, it does look like a, a draw, really. Liverpool need a bit of luck, and it's not a bad thing that we got it. But it will feel a lot... I'll feel a lot safer when it comes to Liverpool picking up results and getting better as the season progresses when Liverpool start posting dominant and deserved yeah. wins. And um, we're not really doing that yet. So it's going to be interesting to see if we can do it against bottom of the league in the, in the next few days against Nottingham Forest. Um, but yeah, I think we'll leave it there, Mo. Touched on a fair few things. Unless you've got anything else to, to touch on. No, all I was going to say in response to that dominance or lack thereof against West Ham... I kind of give them a bit of leeway because you kind of sense that they were conserving energy a little bit. Like there is another game, like the intensity and the the kind of recovery from a game like Man City was always going to take longer than your average game, I think. So against West Ham, it was almost like they were just trying to get through it. And then maybe when we go to Forest at the weekend, we'll see that intensity return. Yeah, well, I mean, I've watched Forest this season. They haven't been great. I think lately they're focusing on defensive stability above everything else and have not really posed much of a threat going the other way. So I think it will be a case of Liverpool trying to break break down a block again. It's a shock. Um, We're just going to make sure that going the other way, we don't concede many counter-attacks and many high-quality chances every every half an hour or whatever because those can cost you results. But we will speak about that next week. Um, Mo, thanks for joining us, mate. No problem. Been fun as again. And uh, we will be back next week, so do tune in. See you then. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.